Welcome to EdPod, connecting educational research and classroom teaching with Drs. Eric Claraval and Darren Battaglia. Episode 2, Historical Thinking. Hello, Eric. Hi, Darren. How are you? Well, I'm doing okay. Historical thinking. Well, I mean, I took history in, in when I was in elementary school, when I was in high school, and even a little bit in college. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you know, historical thinking and trying to get that skill into children is a little bit different than the types of history classes that I took, especially, you know, back going back to high, uh, elementary school when I was just supposed to know the big heroes and remembering dates. So is that along the lines of historical thinking? Okay, you just mentioned remembering dates. That's exactly dates, and I yeah, and I remember dates, and I remember Christopher Columbus and George Washington and all those important figures. That is problematic. It's actually this is the whole reason why we should embrace this historical thinking as a framework in teaching history because the the traditional way of teaching social studies or history in particular, is, you know, just regurgitating of facts and dates and names of dead people. To me, that is, you know, that's problematic because um, we're privileging the, the idea that history is just purely memorization. You know, this traditional teaching of history where, okay, read a textbook, Remember the names, remember the dates, remember some facts, and on Friday we're going to have a quiz. And the quiz is just really a, a test of how much you, you, you've memorized those facts and dates and names of people. And, and, and it still continues up to this day that when we teach history, we, we use a textbook, kids have to memorize the dates and the places and names and just pure memorization. You know, some classes, they do some simulation of events or they do collaboration, uh, work some, you know, working on specific projects or watch a documentary film. And and I, I think I think it is high time for us to reconceptualize the idea of teaching history through the use of historical thinking as as a framework. So historical thinking is what then? Historical thinking is is about reading primary and secondary sources as opposed to reading a textbook. Historical thinking is that students are thinking like historians. So think about what historians do. They don't memorize dates and, and facts, but they analyze primary and secondary sources and create an interpretation of that event. That way, historical thinking really is about understanding what happened and, and, and creating your own narrative of a specific event in history whether it's in in U.S. history or world history. 
So can I put this in the context a little bit of when we were talking about uh, what we were talking about last week? Right. So last session, we talked about disciplinary literacy in general. You know, every content area reading has its own disciplinary skills that we need to target on. So for history, the specific cognitive skills that we need to target on is really to be critical of, of what the kids are reading. Um, they're not just accepting what the textbook is saying. They have to interrogate the text. And, and if you're using a textbook, if there's, there's no way that you can, you can interrogate that because it's, there is lack of sourcing. We don't know who wrote the book. And, and usually, you know, when, when, when we read a textbook, we know that it's, it's a, it was written by a group of people, but, but these group of people have their own interpretation and biases, and then they just create this textbook and privilege, they privileges, they privilege the, the other um, aspects of history. And, and there's a lot of of unheard voices that we're, we're not reading because of that. So there's this question of bias in, in the textbook. As opposed to when you use primer documents, you're gonna the kid you're you're pushing your kids to 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 look at look at the text and and identify the author and the author's background and the author's intention and purpose of writing the text, or if it's a secondary source. So historical thinking uses a framework, uh, and this framework has four different elements. Um, one is sourcing, the second one is corroboration, the third one is close reading, and then the fourth one is contextualization. So sourcing is the idea that um, for for primary source, for example, um, someone wrote it, and 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 then that person has an intention to share that ideas to a bigger audience. Then, so so contextualize that in the classroom. So if we're teaching, for example. Give me, give me one, one event in 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 the U.S. history. Uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. Okay, all right. So, so the kids are gonna read that that speech, right? Right. And and that's one source, and they're gonna look at who wrote that speech, when was that written, and what was the purpose of that speech. So that's one source. And then the second source would probably be a an editorial from a newspaper because of, you know, in reaction to to that speech. Another source would be a letter coming from 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 one of the families of of the deceased soldier. So we're seeing here, you know, different sources from different perspective and and that you know when we think about historical understanding there are many voices involved 
and it is it's 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 up for us teachers to to help our kids to create their own interpretation of 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 history based on the evidence that they have from these three different sources and that to me as historical thinking is is really developing critical thinking not just memorization of events facts and 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 names so it's but it's developing critical thinking in this very specific way i mean it's under this framework that you mentioned sourcing contextualizing corroborating and and, and then close reading right i mean does it include when you when you say critical thinking are you are you thinking of all those four pieces or yeah or yeah mostly just sourcing know. contextualizing right so or, so or when you there are all four so when you okay. when you read different sources you're going to look at what are some of the similarities among these sources? What are some of the contradictions? What are some of the disagree- disagreements from these three different sources? And this is the process of corroboration of evidence. And as students submerge themselves in the text and understanding the context of that speech, for example, they're starting to understand that that oh, history is not just one single fact, and the fact is just whoever wrote the the article. It's just one fact, one voice. So there there is like multivocal in in terms of interpreting specific event in history. So what's corroboration then? Corroboration is 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 a process of of looking for agreements and disagreements among the texts or among the sources. I should sh- I should use sources as opposed to the word text because we might construe it as textbook. So textbook is different from primary and secondary secondary sources. So corroboration is is really a process of looking at agreements and disagreements among the sources that you're reading. So you've got two sources. Okay. And then they might be in disagreement with each other. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So let's see. Okay. Let's look at look at document A and look at document B. And does document A agree with document B? In what way? So if if they both agree, we know that it's a reliable the the, the it's a reliable uh, source. We know that that document A corroborates with document B, and so they, they you know that builds the 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 reliability of a specific argument, mm-hmm. as opposed to you know if both disagree, then then we know that the biases come out there because they have two different perspectives. So now let's look at the third document. Let's see if if document C agrees with A or B. Right. And and then if document C agrees with document A, you know that hmm okay, so now it's two against one. Right? So which one should I believe? Right? And and the idea of sourcing is also important because we want our kids to be critical consumer of, of information. 
we're not just going to accept one document as as the ultimate truth. We need to establish corroborative evidence for us to say that, okay, I believe document A because it, it's somehow similar to what document B is talking about. And, 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 and to me, that is more powerful than, than just reading a textbook, which is univocal. It doesn't steer students, you know, thinking that they have to interrogate the, the sources. Because when you read a text or a textbook, it's the facts are just there but 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 it the facts come from from one specific group of people who just decided to say that okay it's a consensus let's just highlight that specific controversy in history i mean this the idea of corroborations corroboration sounds like something that's a important life skill uh, true. And something that I mean, it's something that everybody can relate to, and I, maybe even our, you know, the generation of kids that we have now. There's so many sources of information. Mm-hmm. Kids can access information on the web. They can access information mm-hmm. uh, that is uh, true. They can access fake. What's it called? Fake news. Absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. News that isn't fake, but it's called fake news. Mm-hmm. And they need to be able to discern what's real and what's not. And so being able to corroborate a couple of different sources of information, being able to judge, um, you know, what's real or what's not, seems like a, a pretty critical skill. I'm glad you mentioned fake news, because this is one implication of, of the use of historical thinking in social studies. One of the goals of, of teaching social studies is, you know, to become a good citizen, right? And, right. And, and being a good citizen is also being a critical consumer of information. There's a lot of information online, but, but if the child is not aware of the idea of sourcing, he's just going to take this information as a matter of fact and that's problematic and dangerous and that's what fake news is all about but then but then if you look at other sources and okay so there's this news i'm not sure if i should believe that right now so i'm going to look for other outlets and read this article and let's see if this corroborates with this particular news and then if you, if the child is able to establish corroboration so then the child is able to exhibit that critical thinking okay close reading what is close reading okay close... i think we could talk about corroboration for a long time because i've got a lot of questions and and that kind of gets me you know the whole fake news thing gets me into other thinking but what's what's close reading close reading is is reading reading a text and understanding the the perspective of the author by looking at the specific language that the author used in in one specific source so you know when you think about history the words are the the way people use specific words back then is different from how we use it now so we're going to you know we're going to look at some of these usage and how is this applied to 
the present time. That's one way of, of looking at close reading. Also, perspective is important in close reading. And, and sometimes, sometimes it's hard to, to understand a text because it's, 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 it's not obvious of what the author is telling. So there is this subtext and, and, and we need to explicitly teach that to our kids and highlight, you know, this specific sentence. And let's talk about this sentence. Okay. Why did, why did the author use a specific word? Does this word, um, does the author aim to, to, to elicit certain feeling? So that's, that's, that's part of close reading. And also in close reading, you focus on vocabulary. You said empathy and contextualization were the same thing. And I guess when I read that, this article, I didn't get that the first time, but how are they the same thing or, or similar concepts in historical thinking? Okay, let's, let's talk about empathy first. Empathy is, is sort of like understanding other people's perspective, right? Right. Or, you know, when we think about empathy, recognition was that that was that term that they used. Yeah, that's that's the term that um, the author Elise Philpot used in this article. Uh-huh. Um, empathy is 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 well, the common understanding of empathy is more more of emotional. You know, like it's like I'm standing. You know, I'm I'm, I'm understanding your own situation. I feel like I am I'm. I'm I'm on your own. Sh- I'm on your shoes, right? So yes. that's 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 empathy. You know, from a psychological standpoint, you're you're able to feel what other people. Yeah, there's an emotional emotion. aspect that's to right. it, right? That's I mean, there's right. a feeling to it that that's context feeling. just doesn't have. Context right. is more analytical than empathy. Right. But maybe that's it. I guess the um, the ability to see a perspective isn't in itself empathetic. But but I, let me let me clarify that further. But in, in in historical thinking, empathy is not just feeling. Empathy is also cognitive. So so there are there, there are two routes in 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 terms of defining empathy in historical thinking. One is the emotional route. You know, history is very emotional when we talk about enslavement of African-Americans, that's emotional. When we talk about Martin Luther King's speech in the 1960s, that's emotional, all right? But there's another aspect of empathy, which is which is cognitive. You don't really need to feel it, but you understand how people think during that time. And that's cognitive empathy. When we think about how people think during that time, there is this idea of con- contextualizing the event. So this is where I thought historical empathy is similar to contextualization because when you contextualize an event, you set aside your own current feelings, your own biases, your own framework of presentism, quote unquote but you contextualize your understanding based on how the people think about that specific event at that time. 
So you think about, you know, the different ethos of, of political ethos at that time. So right now, for example, um, you know, it, it's a conundrum for us that why is it that there's a lot of people still believe in the leadership of Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. Right. But think about. Let's say 50 years from now. When when they when people think about this current administration, they have to think about some of the issues that middle class people or, you know, the, the working class people are feeling and they feel like they're they're marginalized and they they've never been part of of this political discussion and that's the reason why they believe in donald trump because the way donald trump you know feed it feeds into their into their ethos into their you know into their needs so did you get that similarity between empathy and contextualization well i i do i i don't know if you've convinced me Okay. You know, and, and I can think of, you know, the, the, in this article, they give an example of the uh, two students. One is a student of history. One is a student, I think, of physics. They talk about some words of Lincoln, and the student of history isn't able to contextualize them in a way, I think, because of um, perhaps what is not, doesn't ha he doesn't have perspective recognition of Lincoln. Um and uh, doesn't have the empathy, for, I, I think is what you would call it. Um, I, um, and I, I think a lot of, you know, we, we constantly have our own now um, discussions about our own past. How do we reconcile the past of this country every single day? You know, how do we reconcile statues of uh, Confederate leaders? How do we reconcile, um, you know, here, it, where I live here in Portland, um, the high school with the most African-American students is named for Thomas Jefferson. So is that something that, um, you know, we should change? Um, these are things that, you know, we can put in a certain context as well and, and call it empathy because in, in one sense, I, I, I don't know if I... In one sense, there's empathy is is um, being able to feel like that person felt in the in, in the time, and the other uh, and the other thing is, in, in one sense, it is the context of what was going on then, and empathy is not being able to remove yourself from our current context, analyzing things, but also relating it to our current context, and I think that's where I'm having a little bit of problem with some oh, of the examples that we're talking right. about and the example also that's in this article. Right. I think when you show empathy, when you use empathy in the study of history, you set aside what you feel about the current times. Just for example, you know, this statues and contextualize the reason why they erected those statues during that time. So set aside your feeling about social justice at this point, but contextualize that. Why, why, what was the purpose of, of putting all these statues at that time when they built those statues? And, and one argument is that 
you know, that, that blatant racism at that time, that white supremacy at that time. And so that's to, that to me is, is, is the, the conjunction of the idea of empathy and contextualization. So you set aside your own understanding of, of the present. Don't use your present understanding of that specific issue, but, but contextualize that during that time. So there's the process of contextualization could lead into that cognitive empathy. Okay, let's drill down a moment about instruction, Eric. The article by Elise Philpott specifically analyzes historical thinking in the third grade. So this is a, a small qualitative study. It implies that some students may have advanced historical thinking skills while being average in the typically measured abilities such as reading. So if we look very closely at the elementary or middle school level about only instruction, what are some first steps that a classroom teacher can take? I think one of the important ideas of historical thinking is, is the idea of sourcing. And to me, we can easily introduce that to third graders. Just, just explicitly telling them that, okay, we're going to read an article and I want you to, you know, focus on who the author is. Let's look at, let's look at, some, you know, I'm going to give you a little bit of a background of the author. And by studying the author, it gives us an understanding of the author's biases and framework, why he wrote this article. So I, I think that's a good way to start in terms of, of how we can uh, apply historical thinking and in early grades. Change, yeah. uh -huh, and begin mm -hmm. to sort of right. change this in our classrooms. Right. And, and also, you know, let's start, you know, it's, it's also a good, good time for us to veer away from, from the use of textbook. You know, we can, I know it's, it's not that easy but but we should not just depend on textbooks. We should use some trade books. We should use some online articles um, and interrogate uh, that article and see if, if we can find another you know informational text online that could corroborate with the author's um, argument or 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 counter argument so yeah, in summary so in summary so i mean, ask this as a skill of moving away from rote memorization to something that's you know encouraging these skills uh of, of contextualization and of corroborating sources this is really relevant in these times where we're we're talking about fake news every day right um, this is something that's so relevant in 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 our day because these skills, these abilities of our students will be able to, um, they'll be able to put them to use right away mm -hmm. uh, as they read media, as they become you know, citizens in this world and vote and discuss current, um, current happenings in our world, not just the history, but where they are, where they fit in in today's world.
Right. And, and you know, it, if you introduce that to third grade and then they're going to keep on using this framework in fourth, fifth, and middle school, it's it, they, they're going to start to internalize the process. And, and by the time they, they get to high school, you know, when they read primary and secondary sources, it will be a lot easier for high school teachers to, to focus on, all right, let's write an argumentative essay using historical thinking. I, I certainly didn't do that. I, did, I didn't do that in history until college. So with, with, this, with this idea of historical thinking, we're training these kids to become critical readers of online sources through the use of contextualization, corroboration, and sourcing. Eric, thank you so much. You're welcome, Darren. And I look forward to our next conversation. Me too. All See right. You later. See you later. You can find links to articles we discussed on this episode and more in our show notes at edpod.tv. You'll also find other information about us and upcoming topics, as well as how to contact the show. Of course, you can find us on Twitter at RealEdPod. Thanks for listening.